You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here's your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema, and I have a special guest today, Dr. Donna Wilson from the University of Alberta in Canada. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, the reason we invited you, and I'm so excited that you're here, is to talk about family conflicts at end-of-life care. So we'll give you time to do a little presentation, and then we'll ask you some questions after that. Well, I'm delighted to be able to talk about this. We did a literature uh, review, and we started to realize that conflict, well, why wouldn't people have conflict at the end of life? Conflicts in family over finances, how to raise children, what car to buy, <laughs> those things are, you know, quite common. So when someone comes to the end of life, um, that's a very stressful time for, for that person, but also their family as well. And whether that's a really close family or perhaps a family that's drifted apart or there's been, you know, some previous conflict or what have you. So so we, um, a friend of mine, um, another nurse who um, uh, researches end of life care, we looked at what research has been done on this topic to try and, you know, get an idea of how common is is family conflict at the end of life and um, what causes it and, and what are maybe the outcomes of it. So we really did a big search and found that very few studies have been done on this topic. Very, very few. And, um, and that really surprised us. And I think sometimes as well, you know, <clears throat> we have a wonderful hospice palliative movement, which has really worked hard to have good deaths. And I think sometimes we gloss over them, um, you know, that there's some really tough times at the end of life and and family conflict could certainly happen. What we did find in those research studies is um, typically in the past and early studies, it was focusing on, you know, maybe the family fighting with the doctor or the nurse in the hospital or whatever. But what we found was that, um, yes, there definitely was conflict. It, it could occur periodically, or it was a constant throughout um, somebody's end-of-life um, trajectory. And um, and so we decided to set, do a research study. It was done in Canada just before the pandemic hit. So we didn't get kind of, you know, impacted by, you know, the, the pandemic. And what we found um, in our survey was um, hospice nurses, um, doctors who cared for dying people in hospital, um, um, family uh, organization leaders, et cetera. We found people who really we thought could talk about whether they ever saw conflict. And um, most of them had seen conflict. In fact, 95 to 100% of them said, we expect conflict. We see it a lot in the family. And sometimes it's the conflict with a family with one family member, the dying person with one family member or or a few, or it's within the family members. And it's sort of like, you know, if you can imagine, you know, the, the dying person being a bed and the family squabbling over, over the bedside. And I've seen that as, as a nurse as well too. And um, so um, we did interviews then of, um, of uh, the volunteers, the people who filled out this questionnaire, and most of them volunteered. They wanted to talk about this. This was shocking for them. It was distressing for them. And um, 
they found pretty well that there were three reasons why there were these family squabbles. And um, the first one is when the family disagreed about what was happening, whether the person should have more chemotherapy or another, you know, round of, um, you know, kidney treatments or something or other. So you've got some of the family accepting the fact that treatments had failed. Maybe the person recognized they were dying and, um, and um, but you've got some found really having a hard time letting go and say, no, no, more treatment, more treatment, more treatment. So that was one of the big reasons. The second one was really that there had been conflict before. The family, you know, really had been in conflict before. And so now that mom was dying or dad was dying or a sister was dying, it's just almost normal then that you would expect conflict because there had been family fighting before over matters. And in fact, sometimes families had kind of broken apart and they only came back together because mom was dying or dad was dying. And so, so they had that history of conflict. But the third reason was um, the dying process itself. That really upset a lot of people. When um, someone, you know, takes to their bed, um, you know, where they're very close to the end of life, the sounds that they make, um, sometimes a gurgling voice and um, the fact that they couldn't talk and they couldn't eat, that was very, very upsetting. Um, and sometimes the colors and smells weren't very pleasant. And so there was the dying process itself that could really, you know, bring out conflict. Like, you know, what are, and especially if this was a home death, you know, the family would be saying, well, look, you're not doing enough, do more, do more. You know, this isn't, this isn't right. We found three big impacts of this conflict as well, too, when we talked to these people. And and, uh, and the first one was the, the dying person was really harmed or could be really harmed by this. Sometimes the family stopped visiting. Um, sometimes they'd be fighting over, over the bedside, as I mentioned earlier. And sometimes the dying person was trying to make the family get, you know, get back together again. So all their energy was focused on on the conflict and not on on talking about meaningful things that are so important at the end of life and having forgiveness and you know having you know important conversations that you know make a legacy um, on and on the other big impact um, negative impact was for the family after the study kind of came out we had people talk to us and say yes you know <laughs> we ended up having conflict over mom's care and I don't talk to my brother anymore. I will never talk to him again. That is it. We are done. I, there, there, there will be no more continuation. And yet, you know, they have children who, you know, won't get to know each other. You know, this is a fractured um, family. So certainly family, um, you know, uh, loses out. But the other thing as well, too, is we found that sometimes um, if the person had wanted to die at home because of that family con conflict, it wasn't possible. They would end up going into a hospice or um, or into a hospital, a place that they didn't want to be. They wanted to be at home and, uh, you know, with a cat on the bed and, you know, the familiar sounds and, um, you know, they didn't want to be in a busy hospital where there's, the you know, the buzz and people popping in and, you know, um, those kinds of things. So, so we really found organizations, you know, were also impacted by this. And there was one hospice manager who said, 
We have some families that, you know, they take an enormous amount of time and energy because they're fighting amongst themselves to say, look, focus on mum. It's your mum in the bed. Let's try and make this a peaceful, good death um, for your mum, because you will remember that. That will be important for you. So let so so they spent a lot of time and energy trying to um, prevent a new squabble, a new fight from coming out, or they spent a lot of time organizing visits that you know daughter number one can visit from nine until noon. Um, the son can visit from noon until four, and then daughter number two can visit in the evening. I mean, it, you know, it was it was like a revolving door again. Those were things that that um, hospitals and hospices had to do when there was, you know, major conflict. So an interesting, interesting thing when you think that more and more people are dying each year with population aging, and uh, more and more deaths are taking place outside of hospitals. That's a worldwide trend. And so, you know, the opportunity or the, the issues around family um, squabbles or fights, conflict at the end of life, will probably only grow and will we'll continue to hear concerns about this in the future. And I'll, I'll stop there. I'd like to uh, talk with you about this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for giving us uh, that wonderful background on this topic. Uh, how did your interest in this topic begin? Oh, thank you for asking that. It, um, you know, as a researcher, um, I started out being really interested in aging because as a, a, a young nurse, we were not, um, you know, we didn't realize we had an aging population that the more and more people would reach 80, 85, 90, 95, 100. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and that's a really pronounced trend now. I mean, most people today could easily reach age 85. Um, and, uh, you know, as a nurse, you want people to be well all of their lives. But the reality is, is that some point for all of us, our life ends. Mm -hmm. And um, increasingly now, um, we know for a number of months or years that we're getting close to the end. Um, my stepdad just died at age 96, a World War II veteran, and um, he um, he was very healthy until the last um, two years of life. And he wanted to get well again and back into his apartment and, you know, traveling to Arizona and what have you. But in the last few weeks, when it became evident to him um, he that the end was coming, he accepted it and a um, little afraid of it. And um, but again, there was an awareness that the end was coming and all of the family also recognized that as well, too. So so aging was partly how I got into this um, death and dying and grief and mm. the surprise, <laughs> you know, conflict. It, it uh, came up in one of our studies. And so we focused on it and uh, realized what a big issue it is and yeah. mostly untalked about. It is, and uh, I've been working in end-of-life care for quite a long time, and I'm always surprised when there's a, a coming from Africa, end-of-life care tends to bring people together. It's mm -hmm. easy to put any kind of animosity behind just to take care of the loved one who is dying. Uh, but mm -hmm. I remember one time uh, when I was just starting out in hospice, uh, the patient who was dying had about seven children. 
and uh, they they were having an intense conflict with each other. And he told me, so can you help me resolve this? So we had a number of family meetings to resolve, but it was quite challenging. And how can um, how can we help families? Uh, because it's a delicate time for the person who is dying. As mm-hmm. In most cases, it's a parent, whether a mother or a father. How can clinicians navigate that and provide quality mm-hmm. care? Well, I think one of the things that needs to be in the forefront is expecting conflict. Why wouldn't conflict occur? Um, I mean, this is a a really, really tough, you know, part of life, watching your mother pass away, father pass away, or a spouse, you know, a beloved spouse, even a child. I mean, why wouldn't conflict um, happen at, you know, at that time? Because there's disagreements over, you know, what treatment should be done and where the person should pass away. And, and, um, and again, you know, if there ever had been family conflict in the past, why wouldn't there be conflict now? Because you're right. I mean, um, it used to be families came together at the death, you know, either the deathbed or the funeral. Because dying typically, you know, years ago used to be quick. Yeah. But now with healthcare technology and more and more people living into old age, usually we're looking at, you know, months or years of awareness that, you know, this person is getting close um, to the end. And um, that means more families are having to interact before the death. Mm. So that's one of one of kind of um, the differences. So so I think, you know, once, um, you know, once it begins to be aware, some awareness amongst the healthcare team or the family that, um, you know, that the end is coming, maybe in a week, maybe in a month, maybe in six months, whatever. I think there needs to be awareness that we need to watch for conflict and try and prevent it Hmm. because conflict would be normal. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's just like after the death, grief is normal. Well, I would. I I'm trying to say that really, before the death, conflict is 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 normal, and we need to expect it. And if we can try and prevent it, that's the big thing. Mm. And um, this is where you know it could be the you know the hospice chaplain, maybe the primary caregiver of the dying person. Um, you know, it could be a daughter or a son or whatever who sets some rules up, perhaps or sits down and early on before it becomes a big fight that's so hard to come back from, you know, um, set some rules up to say, you know, we, we don't all have to visit at the same time. We, um, are you okay if I'm the spokesperson that I talk with the doctor um, or, you know, the nursing home administrator or whatever, do you mind if I'm the spokesperson? So setting up some, some things in advance that can perhaps prevent conflict from really, you know, sparking and, you know, because once it's like a fire, once a fire starts, <laughs> <laughs> it can be pretty hard to put it out yeah. and and it leaves damage. So again, if you can prevent um, conflict by, um, by having early meetings um, to try and smooth things over, set some rules in place, that probably is going to be really um, critical um, uh, you know, for families. 
in how they navigate together this end of life process, which, which again could go on for weeks or even months. Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Dr. Wilson. Um, I like when you say that, you know, clinicians should expect conflict instead of going with the naivety that everything is fine. I think mm -hmm. that expectation already puts you in a good posture to identify um, uh, some conflicts within the family dynamic. Uh, mm -hmm. In your research, which is quite an, an impressive research, what, what have you found to be the common themes or the most common uh, sources of conflict? Um, the, uh, <clears throat> I sort of briefly mentioned three things earlier. Um, one um, being disagreements over um, whether uh, the treatment should continue or not, and you know, and and what should be done to try and comfort you know the the dying person or or prevent death. Um, the second one being previous family conflict, and the third one being actually at a death deathbed. Um, and seeing seeing something that is so emotionally charged and if you don't mind i'll, I'll maybe just talk about that last one um, okay. for a minute yeah because um you know as a nurse i've been at the bedside of many many um dying people and so i know what the person looks like i know what they sound like i you know um and really most um, people um, who are dying, you know, there's a period where, you know, you hope that maybe they'll rally and, you know, the chemotherapy will work or, or, you know, this bad cold will go away and they'll rally um, um, to you. There's a recognition that, you know, um, their death is going to come. We just don't know when to then when the person really takes to their deathbed in the last day to three before they, they pass away. And as a nurse, um, I've, I, as I mentioned, I've been at the bedside many, many times, um, you know, providing last minute care and, or last hours care. And for, for most people today, you've never, we've never seen a dying person. Mm. You know, because in you know a hundred years ago, before there was antibiotics and hospitals and intensive care units and um, what have you, you know, and, and war, more wars, um, we would see a lot more dying people. The average person would know what to expect when someone was dying of typhoid and measles and what have you. They, you know, families and individuals in families um, develop quite a lot of knowledge of end-of-life care because of experience. They saw a lot of death and dying a hundred years ago. But today, I mean, everybody lives to be 85. <laughs> you know, very few young people pass away. And, uh, and we have much smaller families now, and they're so spread around the globe that, um, that, when you hear that mom is is you know um, taken a turn for the worse and is now um, bed bound and you know you rush there, you know 
you remember the person as they were vibrant and alive and you know talking with you on the phone and making plans it's a huge shock to see this person so much dim diminished in a way and they might be not able to talk anymore and it's distressing when you when they when they can't they don't want to drink anything anymore or eat anything anymore and they may be very pale or blue and chesty like they've got a cold and everything and you know i've had families you know turn to me and say do something do something you know mm. and um demanding painkillers you know geez you must be in pain and um you know uh, that kind of thing but it's just distressing it you know we're not used to that sort of thing and it, and it can be very very difficult yeah. And in fact, sometimes you need to really decide, do you want to be there right to the very end? Can, can you manage that um, or not? And, you know, for some people, I mean, they have nightmares about that afterwards. It was so distressing for them to actually be there when the last breath um, was drawn. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so... You know, I mean, death is a reality for all of us. And, um, you know, and when a loved one dies, it's really, really difficult. If you just dearly love your mother, you know, the person that's passing away. But it's almost as difficult as well, too, if there had been um, conflict. You know, yeah. there's not a per some people are not perfect parents. Yeah. And so when the when the children are visiting, um, you know, father or mother, maybe who had abandoned them, uh, maybe who had alcohol problems or gambling problems or mental health problems, you know, again, it can bring up a lot of very difficult things. But, you know, when I've also seen the opposite, mm. um, families sometimes in the quiet of the hours as you wait um, for the end to come you know they remember things about what they did together when they were children they yeah. remember the the pet that the maybe the mother had gotten them and um they they can be bond again so there's a wonderful opportunity despite all of the prior conflict or issues in the past of families coming together but again, it's, you know, there's no such thing as the Waltons family. That was a, a <laughs> fictitious TV show years ago where everybody went to bed happy and they all cared about each other and they all lived together without issue. Yeah. You know, I mean, the reality is people live busy lives and, and conflict is pretty normal. But again, around the, around, you know, uh, when someone is, is, um, it's a wonderful opportunity to come together and rebuild the family again yeah. if you drifted apart. Yeah, in terms of conflict, I found a different phenomenon where in most cases the family is together as the patient dies. But then mm -hmm. after that, there's a conflict over the inheritance. And I found that yes. to be quite a, a growing trend uh, in recent years where this, mm -hmm. <laughs> everything seemed fine when the patient was dying. But when I began to make the bereavement phone calls to check on them, mm -hmm. you realize there's a lot of conflict that has blown up now. They are not talking to each other because of what each wanted to inherit from, especially if the deceased parent or loved one was wealthy. It really has divided a lot of families there. 
Yeah. And and there's an, and I've also seen that even before the death as well to okay. fighting over the will and you know and in fact sometimes you know the will might you know have have given what was seen as a bigger share to one child. Mm. Um and um so I've seen fighting even before the death um over you know well mum loved you more because she gave you the house and I'm only getting <laughs> a bit of land and you know, so so you're right. Sometimes money is at the heart of it, and um, you know, and unfortunately, some people die without a will, or uh, with a will that really isn't fair. That it doesn't divide things um, equally amongst the children, and for whatever reason. Um, but yes, money. You know, they say is the root of all evil. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it, it certainly can spark some family conflict. I think before and and um, you know and after. Um, it's interesting though too. I've done a follow up study to this um, mm -hmm. around um, funerals and what you do after the death. And a lot of family members say that this is a very busy and stressful time as well too. Yeah. And some of it is because you don't know what you're supposed to do now. And um, so funeral home directors and hospice chaplains and, you know, there's certain people then that can say, okay, now you need to do this and do this and do this and do this. But it tends to be a very busy time. Yeah. Um, and family members often have to come together for that as well, too, to say empty out mom's house and sell the proceeds or put the house up for sale and this was the house where they grew up yeah. and it's very sad for them. And again, conflict can be sparked in that, uh, you know, after the death as well too, but yeah. you know, you're, you're grieving. And on top of that, you're having to plan a funeral and, you know, get rid of all these goods and deal with, you know, <clears throat> a sister or brother who didn't think they got a fair share <laughs> of the, you know, the money or the, the goods. It's funny. I was dealing with that not long ago, a few months ago, where this daughter who is taking care of the mother, um, her and her family are not wealthy, so they are, they were struggling. So by taking care of the mother at the mother's house, she had housing, but then the mother died. And while I'm there comforting her through this grief, her first fear is my siblings are going to kick me out of the house the moment they find out that mom is dead and they want yeah. to sell the house. Now I'm about to become homeless. So it began to trigger all these things that, um, and she was even torn on whether to tell the siblings that mom is dead. That's how serious, how chronic that situation was. Yeah. And, um, but I think uh, when we talk about family findings, what has surprised you more uh, in, in, in your research when we talk about family conflict? I think so. Um, <clears throat> It constantly sort of um, um, distresses me um, <clears throat> about um, when there's a family conflict over over um, treatment, <clears throat> and um, you may have the local, you know, the people, you know, that lives with mom, the the local people, or that live close by to mom, or the dying person that really is aware that they have become quite elderly and the things they used to do, they can't do anymore that, you know, a family caregiver is, is having to clean the house and help them into the tub and, you know, do all the shopping and banking and everything. But if, if you, if you don't live close to your, 
your person, you don't really realize how much they maybe have aged. And and um, even if, for, for instance, it's a younger person who develops cancer, and cancer is a chronic illness now. Mm. Most people have it, you know, 5, 10, you know, 15 years, you know, it might be cured. But, but typically you live with cancer, particularly if you're an older person. So family members who aren't close by don't realize that, yes, chemotherapy was given and it was really difficult, perhaps. Um, and they um, gave her a break and and now they've tried a different kind of chemotherapy and that also failed and maybe give a break again. They tried the third round of chemotherapy and the person now is so weak and ill that they're just saying no more. It's not working. And the doctors and the medical team is saying no more, whatever. But if you haven't been part, you know, if you haven't been close or kept up on on all of this, you know, a daughter or son can come from far away and be just completely shocked at this change, um, you know, to, to ill health um, and demand more surgery and treatment. And let's take mom to Mexico for this, you know, this new type of, you know, um, treatment that um, will cure her, you know, it'll save her. Hmm. And that always, you know, and, um, you know, and sometimes there's a cultural basis um, to that. There's certain religious groups and, um, you know, where they really, um, you know, believe that you uh, must do everything to prolong life as long as possible. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, but oftentimes mo most families, you have a division in the family um, where something some of the family members think not enough has been done to try and save mom and live, you know, help her live longer. Some that really feel like we've done too much. Mm. Um, you know, she's suffered through all those chemotherapy. Why did we, why did we encourage her to take all of that chemotherapy? Because now she weighs 80 pounds and she's lost all of her hair and she's bedridden. And then the middle group are saying, well, we tried. That was what the doctors recommended. We we did that. Now the doctors are saying there's nothing else. So, you know, it um um that in some ways, I guess because we fear death. You know, it's the end. Yeah. They're gone forever, and we we sometimes fear dying as well too. We think it's painful. Well, not. I don't believe it is painful. We have great painkillers now and what have you, but I guess it's, it's normal to think that families would, would, you know, have this split in them thinking, have we done too much curative treatment? Have we done what we sh should and rightly have done? And then, you know, the other ones saying, oh, my God, you just haven't done enough, you know, um, you know, and, and just because mom says she doesn't want any more chemotherapy, she should have it anyway. Let's force it on her. <laughs> you know, so here's really, you know, and I think at the heart of it again is that, you know, we all know that death, death is the end. Mom mm. is gone then. We've got memories and, you know, some people are very strong about, you know, someday I will meet her in heaven again. But, um, you know, it, at the heart of it is this, this they're gone. This is mm -hmm. death. There's no turning back. So what? So again, you know, families can really be split on on um, whether you accept 
that, you know, the treatment is finished. There's nothing more, you know, my stepdad's 96. <laughs> you know, it became very obvious that, you know, it was, there wasn't anything left, that the body was dying. And, and we didn't want him to go, but, but he was going to die and he did die. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Dr. Wilson. Uh, before the break, you were talking about the kind of conflict caused by uh, either acceptance or denial. I remember uh, one, one weekend I got called out to go and support a family at a facility. Um, when I went in, I found about four daughters sitting around mom and trying to force mom to eat. Uh, the thing is mom had already begun the process of dying. And the body was beginning to shut down. So food was, she wasn't feeling hungry. She wasn't eating. Mm -hmm. And then so I took the daughters to a private room to, to process their thinking, you know, how they're dealing with this. And what I was hearing from the daughters is that, you know, mom is fine. She doesn't have cancer. She's just giving up on us. You know, if she eats, she'll be stronger. Then I'm like, I'm looking at the diagnosis. I'm like, she's on hospice because she has this terminal cancer that is, you know, is killing her. No, it was taken out. Mom doesn't. We brought her here at the facility just for rehab. <laughs> if she eats, she'll be fine. And it really, it took a lot of conversation to break through, to realize that, you know, to, for them to reach that level of acceptance that mom is actually dying. And she died two days later. But they finally came around. But that is the power of denial, how families can mm -hmm. deny and deny and go through this inner conflict that affects mm -hmm. the grieving process. I, I, I'm, I'm very much appreciating um, that story because I think that's very common, um, the denial. And, and it comes out of love and yeah. devotion and... Um, you know, and the responsibility as a child to look after your mother. We all know that that's a responsibility that we should stand up to. And but it comes, I think, out of love and, yeah. you know, um, that kind of thing. But a lot of times, again, it's, you know, no experience. That's the first death you've ever seen, maybe. <laughs> the first Probably. person, you know, you've ever been close to, you know. Um, you know, we live such lonely lives in a way, you know, that we're, um, you know, my next door neighbor could be dying and I wouldn't know. And I've got family spread all around the world and, you know, that I hardly ever see. Um, it used to be you had about eight children and you ex could expect that probably half of those would die before they became adults. And sisters and brothers would, they would have accidents and, you know, um, get a pneumonia and, you know, and it would become evident, you know, that they were dying. And, you know, you, in those days, you would rush to the, maybe the bedside and um, be there. 
um, and you would ex you would know that this person was dying. You'd have experience with it, and you probably could handle your grief better as well too. Yeah. Because really, there's something called anticipatory grieving, where you know whether you want to deny death, you know, no, we'll try and prevent it. More treatment, more treatment. But you also start grieving before before the actual death. And so that's a confounding factor that, you know, you may not be really thinking clearly because you you are starting to grieve. You've also maybe lost some sleep traveling to, <laughs> you know, be there and you've been up all night because mom was restless or whatever, too. So those factors all kind of contribute together to, you know, why wouldn't you have um, some conflict then? And how wonderful it is then to, you know, when you think of what can be done is to pull the family aside into a calm place and let people talk and give them some suggestions and, you know, and tell them what's normal. They, this is really normal. What's happening now is, is very normal. And, um, and, and acknowledging their love for their mom. It's obvious you really love, love and care for your mother yeah. and how nice you're all here today. So I think there's a lot of little things and big things that can be done, but but the biggest thing is to recognize that, oh, there's conflict. <laughs> 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 and it can spark up any time, or boy, you can have a big feud here. So, <laughs> so we need to we need to expect it. We need to expect <laughs> it for sure. Um is it preventable? I think it is a great deal. Especially um, from the start. Yes, yes very, very much so. Um, in in the, the interviews we did of, you know, hospice managers and um, palliative care nurses and doctors and family members who had cared for, you know, their dying mom and, you know, in our interviews that we did for the study and, and kind of afterwards, we, you know, they would often say, um, you know, this is, this is what we ended up doing. And one was setting up a visiting roster so that they wouldn't have to all be in the room together. You know, that was the sort of an extreme kind of case that we can come in the morning. Yeah, the visiting roster. <laughs> because they, they, they might bump on each other. Somebody's yeah. coming in and one is going out and they could clash in the parking lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, or even setting up rules, like there will be no fighting in the person's room. If you have yeah. a disagreement, go outside the room and far enough away that raised voices can't be heard by, by, the, by the dying person. But I, I think really um, a lot more prevention can happen. And, and that is where you maybe do a family history. So if, you know, if you're working in a hospice or you're in a hospital or, or fam, you know, either a family member is passing away, it would be a good time to just kind of ask, you know, some questions, you know, um, you know, who do you expect, you know, will visit, you know, and do they get along? Has there any been any past conflict and what was it over? And, um, you know, is there a will and um, do you think that that will settle things, you know? Was there even an advanced directive where the person said, I want to die at home. I don't want any antibiotics. I don't want any last minute sort of things. So, so I think, you know, there's a lot that can be done to um, prevent conflict. 
But I think one of the most important things is, you know, is just saying, saying to each family member, the family as a whole, you know, let's make this a really peaceful time for your mom. And isn't it nice you're all here? And it's going to be a very stressful time for you. And if you're upset with anything or have any questions, whatever, let's talk about it, okay? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't blow up into into some kind of a conflict. So it's just, you know, sort of taking those leading steps to recognize that conflict could happen or that it's, that it's been happening and um, trying to set up a situation where people feel like they're heard and respected, that somebody cared about them in this tough time. It's a tough time watching your mom die or your dad die. And, Hmm. you know, it brings back a lot of tough memories. And so having group meetings, individual meetings, and and again, setting down some rules, there's no fighting in this room. Hmm. Take it outside. So what are, uh, this is way out there, but what are the role of rituals? when it comes to conflict resolution in end-of-life care. <laughs> I know this is way out there. It's not part of your research. <laughs> Probably it I, is. <laughs> oh, I think that's wonderful. Um, we've been researching um, customs, end-of-life customs and funeral customs. Yes. And um, rituals are very um, reassuring. This is what we do um, at the bedside, you know, at the funeral, etc. And um, um, finding out what's really quite normal for either the cultural group or the religious group or this or this family in particular. Um, I have Irish roots and talking about rituals, when um, uh, when you visit um, a terminally ill dying person, you don't go in all sad and expecting to be really serious. You bring in jokes and you try and laugh. And um, so that's a ritual. You you try to find the best jokes and funniest stories and come to comfort the dying person and the family through laughter um, as compared to, you know, talking really seriously and, you know, and, and fighting over, you know, past whatever. So rituals um, are very, very um, uh, important. The issue now is, though, is that people move around the world so much that we're getting homogenized rituals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so in your home country, perhaps it would be normal for, um, you know, for the person to die at home surrounded by their goats and their, their you know, cattle and their, to bring their possessions to them. And people would wear certain things and say certain things, but because um, they've moved to Canada, they you know, or the U.S. or somewhere else, where there's different customs, those customs maybe don't work anymore. Those rituals don't work anymore. Mm. So it's a good idea to say, is there anything that you really think should be done or would like to be done in this period? Like the indigenous peoples, um, sweet grass ceremonies, how, you know, burning sweet grass. But there's some indigenous families would say, oh, I don't want that stinky stuff here. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so so rituals, I think, are, are can be extremely um, normative and comforting. Yeah. 
but you have to ask about them. You can't just assume that, oh, you're going to want to lay the person on the floor when, before they die. That's a ritual. It uh, was a ritual in India at one point. You would put them on the floor. And of course, then you cremate the body and you you know, put them in the river, the ashes in the river. Well, with so many people from India moving around the country, those rituals are gone now. So, I, so, so they can be very, very powerful. Um, or so, but you have to ask, what rituals do you expect um, or or you want? And and I'll just say one last thing. Um, one of the big studies I did, um, and a few people have now replicated, is I found out that if family members think it was a bad death for any reason maybe because of the fighting amongst themselves, maybe because they thought mom died in pain, or gee, mom wanted to die at home, but she ended up in hospital and we couldn't bring her home because there was too much fighting or whatever. If the family members think that it was a bad death, they will grieve longer and harder. It's very clear. So you, you, you remember that, you have regrets about it. And so it'd be natural you would grieve harder and longer. When you when you think mom didn't die a good death hmm. not necessarily what i wanted but i'm worried about mom mom was the one who was dying yeah. and i don't think she died a good death so that's the kind of you know at the heart of this i think is why we need to do something about conflict yeah what are your final thoughts oh goodness um <laughs> <laughs> I think um, um, in most developed countries, in a lot of developing countries, uh, more and more people um, know they're dying um, and they're wanting to die at home, out of a hospital. And in fact, I've just looked at um, um, death rates in hospital and I mean, we're looking now at 30% of deaths happening in a hospital, uh, only 30%. And so you've got experts then who are looking after the person. You've got all the technologies and medications and everything else. About a third of deaths now are taking place in either the person's home or a family member's home. And about a third are taking place in a nursing home, which becomes home for that person. That's mm -hmm. their home. That's why they call them um, nursing homes. And um, I think that the importance of the family is only going to grow and grow and grow then mm. um, in terms of um, helping dying people, doing end-of-life care for dying people um, with sometimes very little assistance from, um, you know, physicians and nurses and social workers or whatever there's more and more i think of the responsibility of good deaths and preventing bad deaths being placed on the family and so this is where i think hospices and palliative care centers and um you know funeral homes and what have you can have a major role in in helping um educate family members on you know how can we prevent conflict how can we have you know, mom have a good death and, and, and what do we need to do after the death as well too, so that it's a, it's a smoother process. So in other words, how can we maintain the family or build the family through a death? 
you know, if the family's drifted apart, how can we get the family back in, into a loving relationship again so that they support each other in the grief after the death and things like that, yeah. So, so again, not only do we have more people dying as populations are growing and aging, um, but we have more emphasis on the family. The family's becoming more and more responsible. As most deaths used to take place in hospital, they sure are now. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Wilson. You've given us a lot of food for thought. This has been quite a, an amazing conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for all you're doing, watching the web. <laughs> See on the website what topics you've had have been just amazing. So keep up the good work. And thanks to everybody for listening, for all what you do um, as well, too. Caring people. There's lots of caring people out there. Thank you very thank much. You. <laughs> that was Dr. Donna Wilson. And thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.